Amen. You may be seated. If you would, please bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to open God's Word together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the glorious good news of your resurrection and what this means for us. We pray that as we consider these things, that you would reveal to us uh, in a deeper way than we've ever seen it before. Uh, Just what you've done for us, what it means for our lives today. Uh, I pray that your name would be glorified in our time. Uh, We confess, as as we do each week, anytime we open your word, anytime we gather together, anytime we seek to draw closer to you, we cannot do this on our own. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would move in this place, that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would apply the truths of your eternal word to our hearts and our minds, and that we would leave here having seen you more clearly. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, happy Easter. Uh, Glad you're here. So glad that we could gather together to celebrate today. And and as we do, as we consider uh, the truths of Easter and the resurrection of Jesus, I want us to consider this morning how Easter has the most profound effect on our lives right here and now today. Uh, Oftentimes, and for good reason, and I don't want to push this to the side at all. We can focus on the historical fact of the resurrection. Jesus literally bodily rose from the dead and that is true and our hope hangs on that. We want to affirm that. But I also want us to think about how that truth affects our lives today. When you get up tomorrow morning, on Monday morning, how does the truth of what God has done at Easter affect the rest of your day tomorrow? And the day after that, and the day after that. And so I want us to consider something that I think, that I believe, that we all struggle with at different times. That we all wrestle with in our lives. And it's just simply that each one of us, at different times in our lives, daily, I would bet, we struggle with insecurity. We struggle to some degree with seeking to prove ourselves. And, and there's so many ways we could talk about that. As I was thinking about it the last couple of weeks, kind of preparing for this and reading and thinking about it, and I kept going and reading different research and different articles. I read a whole lot of articles from psychology today. <laughs> and I was reading all these different things and coming back to this. And basically what all of them were saying is, yeah, everybody deals with this. And as I read those articles and kept talking about the different issues we have and the way that we wrestle with them, Uh, Three things that kept coming up in all these articles over and over. The things that it kept saying that we struggle and why we struggle with anxiety and insecurity and seeking to prove ourselves. And they would say uh, things like uh, the common ones were that we continually compare ourselves to others. That daily, in, in all different ways. How successful we are, maybe the way we look, the way we act, or whatever it may be, we, we walk around comparing ourselves with others. Uh, the second one that was in just about every single thing I read was that we have insecurity in our relationships. And, and the way that it was often described is part of that insecurity is desiring to meet the one. To have someone in our life that, that, that's marriage and spouse and all these things and they will help Uh, alleviate all these insecurities we have. Someone will love us. But deeper than that, further or wider than that, was not just a spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend, but uh, your relationships every day. 
We all want to be known, and we all want to be loved, and we wrestle with the insecurities that go around that every single day. And then the, the last one said uh, we, sh- we wrestle with meaning and purpose and insecurity as it pertains to our vocation, what we do, how successful we are, or how perceived by the world how successful we seem. And so as I was reading those, and I was thinking through that, and I was going through that, if I'm honest, I deal with a lot of those daily. I was thinking about it in different ways, the ways that really get at my own heart. I look at my children, and I'm so proud of them, and I love them, and they're wonderful. But depending on how well they're doing, I can sometimes get my identity based off my children. And so if things aren't going great, or they're not responding in the way that I hope they would respond or something, I can take it personally and become insecure and struggle with those things when I look at my own kids. Or if I'm real personal, I tell you, as a pastor, Easter's great. There's a lot of people here. right? You come and, and it's full and we're excited and it's Easter and we're celebrating. We're going to have baptisms today. We're going to do those things. And you walk out and you're like, all right, killing it. And then three weeks from now, there'll be like people are on vacation and there'll be half as many people and you'll be like, oh, what am I doing wrong? You ever feel those things in your life? Maybe with your relationships or with your kids or with your job? Do you ever feel those insecurities that you struggle with? And so I start there and say, okay, great, but what does that have to do with Easter? And I would say to you, the passage we're going to look at this morning, what we're going to talk to, it has everything to do with Easter. It has everything to do with what Jesus has accomplished for us and what we're going to talk about this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple verses in Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along with us, there's some in the pews there in front of you. If you grab one that has an all-white cover, this will be on page 572. If you grab one that's got a blue stripe on the front of it, it'll be on page 638. And we're going to look at a few verses in Colossians 1 and then a couple in Colossians 2. If you're not familiar with the book of Colossians or what it is, it's actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae to encourage them to apply the truths of the resurrection and what Jesus has done to their lives. And so we're going to look at just a few verses in there of this letter and what Paul's telling us and what he's bringing out and what God tells us. And so here's what I want us to see as we do. The first thing I want us to see is that we all have a problem with wrestling with our self-worth, with insecurity, anxiety, the struggles we have in our life. And I think as we look at Colossians, it's going to start to open up the root of what that is. That's the first thing I want us to see. The second thing we're going to look at is how Jesus and his life death and resurrection deals with all of the root of those issues. All of them. And then lastly, we'll consider as we get up and we leave here today, how do we live in light of this truth of what Jesus has done? And so let's just start with the problem as we see it. The problem that I think, if we're honest, all of us face at different times, oftentimes daily. And as I was reading all these articles and all these things and thinking on this of our insecurities or the ways that we seek to prove ourselves or all these things that we all wrestle with, what I kept reading was all the ways that we're told that we're to deal with it. Just as I kept seeing the same things coming up over and over about what the big problems were, I kept seeing the same way that the world is telling us that we deal with them. 
And the first one that kept coming up was um, that when you realize that you're, you're not lived up to what you think or you struggle with those things, you have to just keep loving yourself and keep working at it. And if you realize, I didn't do as well, okay, we'll get back to work, keep working at it, and just keep loving yourself. The, the second thing that kept coming up was um, that you need to talk back to your inner critic. So when you feel that and you feel like I haven't done it, you need to talk back to yourself and say you're good enough and you can do it. Come on, give yourself a pep talk. And then the last one that was there was when you struggle with those things uh, to combat perfectionism. That leads to a lot of this as far as our understanding goes. We're not perfect and we know it. And so you need to focus on effort rather than being perfect. Give your best effort. Now, now by the way, I'm, I'm not making light of any of those things. I don't think any of those things are bad in and of themselves. I think there's anything wrong with focusing on doing your very best in all things. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a biblical principle. Glorify God in everything you do. Seek to do it with your best of your ability. None of those things are bad. But here's the issue. When I was reading all this stuff and I'm going through the ways it's telling you all these things, basically what everything was saying is they're all environmental and there's nothing really wrong. That it's just your perception and you just need to adjust your perception and you need to love yourself and then you need to keep moving forward. Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? That there's nothing really wrong, you just need to give yourself a good pep talk every day. I don't think that's what it says. And so we're going to look at Colossians. And as we step into Colossians, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And as you do, as you look there, just let me set the, the, the scene for you. We're, we're picking up right in the middle of what most scholars believe is a hymn or a creed that the early church would have recited and sung together over and over. And so Paul's saying this thing that they would have known. And what he's saying is, is what we call one of the highest of high of the Christology. Christology being who we believe Jesus Christ was. Who the early church believed and held to. And so if you look at verse 19, it says, For in him, talking about Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Think about that for just a second, what he's saying. In him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is the early church. Colossians written by right around 60 A.D. Within one generation, they were singing and professing together that Jesus is God. People will tell you today that that came over a long period of time. That his earliest followers didn't actually believe that. That it grew out of generations and generations and myths. And then somewhere along the way, they decided that Jesus was God. That is an absolute lie. From the very beginning, all of Jesus' followers believed that he was God. That doesn't prove that he was God if you're skeptical. But what it does prove is that it didn't get embellished over time and grow out of that. They actually believed it. But go back to what he says next, verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
And then look at chapter 2, verse 13. It should be just on the same page right there with you if you're following along in the Pew Bible. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so I want us to look at this this image and what he fills out for us as he talks about what our issue is, what our problem is, why we struggle with insecurity, improving ourselves, and the anxiousness that goes along with that. And what Paul tells the early church in Colossae and is telling us as God has preserved this for us is true not just of them, but it's true of all people. And he paints this picture of why we struggle. And he says things like we're alienated in our minds. Verse 21. Hostile in mind. We become alienated. We're doing evil deeds. In chapter 2 he says you are dead in your trespasses. That you have a record of debt that stands against you. And it's not a very pretty picture of what he tells you. He starts to say that you're hostile in your mind and you've done evil deeds and you've alienated yourself and all these uh, language that he uses. And as you read through that and as you see what he's saying, all of a sudden it begins to form what the Bible tells us. That at your very core, you were made to be in a loving relationship with God. God created you in his image after his likeness to center around him first and foremost above all else. That's the way you were made. I was reading a book just this week by Paul Tripp, and he says it this way. God carefully constructed you to love. And he did so so that you would have the need uh, to live in a deeply loving, heart-controlling, motivation-producing, worship-initiating, joy-stimulating relationship with him. Your capacity to love was created by and for God. That's where you're made to find the very being of who you are. That's where you will be most satisfied and most joyful and most inspired. It is the only place that you will truly be able to rest. But yet what we've done is we've taken our capacity to love for God and we have exchanged the love of God for the love of other things and now we struggle. We've taken this infinite capacity that God's given us to love Him that only He can meet those needs and we've sought to put other things in His place and what happens is it makes us woefully insecure. We're trying to take a finite thing to fill an infinite need in our life and so we struggle. We were made to love. We were made to be loved. By God and for Him. Now that doesn't mean we weren't made to love other people. But we were made to love God first and then other people out of the overflow of that. And we've switched it. And so what happens when we do the tragedy that comes out of that is we seek to fill that void with other loves. I seek to get my self-worth by how well I'm doing at my job. 
I, I seek to get part of my identity by how good my kids are doing. And, and I'm looking for love and acceptance in ways that can never fill the love and acceptance that I was made for, which is only for God. And so when you see that and you read what Paul says here and he uses language like you're hostile in mind. You've been alienated. He's talking about being alienated from the very love that we were made for that is in God. We've turned our backs on him. In our sin, we've gone towards other things. And so we struggle with it over and over and over. And yet we wake up and we try to fill the void with a job. Or a spouse, or a house, or a car, or our kids. And we still struggle. So there's so many books written on how do we fill the void? You get up and you talk to yourself. And you say, you're better than that. That's what the world tells us. So how does Easter answer this? How does the good news of the resurrection of Jesus answer the issues that we deal with? Look again what he says in chapter 1 in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus who is God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven by making peace by the blood of his cross. Since Jesus has come to fix this issue. He has come to reconcile us. He's coming to make us not be hostile in mind and alienated from the love that we were created for, but to bring us back into it. And so look at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Or in chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside nailing it to the cross. And so when you start to look at what he's teaching and what all of scripture unfolds for us and tells us is that Jesus came to reconcile us by his death. That the God of the universe came and walked on earth. And he loved God and he loved people perfectly. He did all of it perfectly. Perfect fellowship. Perfect grace and truth and love for God and people and everything he did. And then he comes to the end of his life and he says, I will willfully, gladly go to the cross. And I will take all your mess on me. I want you to think about what happens on the cross. All your insecurities and all the things you struggle with and all your deepest, darkest secrets, all the things that make you most insecure about yourself. Your debt, your alienation, your struggles, the things that you don't want anyone to ever know. Because if they knew, they wouldn't really be able to love you. Or so you tell yourself. And Jesus says, I will gladly take all of it. And I will nail it to the cross as I pay your debt on your behalf. And so he does. Every bit of it. And he takes it and he does it for you. 
And in doing so, it says he sets aside the legal demands. I want you to think about what that means. Sometimes we get caught up on this. We go, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but people will rightfully ask, and it's a good question to ask, but why did Jesus have to die? Because if God is perfectly just, then payment has to be made for our rebellion. Or he's no longer just. And go, well, why can't he just forgive? Well, he can forgive, but there has to be a payment for your sin, or he's no longer just. But God being perfect just and justice and perfect love together, that all comes together on the cross in Jesus. And so he takes all of our sins and all of our mess, and he takes it upon himself, and he cancels it. He wipes it clean. And so oftentimes when we talk about what Jesus did on the cross, we just stop right there. So, well, you're a Christian. Yes. Jesus died for my sins. Yes. Amen. But you know, that's half the equation. You know what the other half is? Jesus came and he lived this life perfectly in every way. He never sinned. He took all of that on himself. Your sin and my sin, and that's why he goes to the cross. But he doesn't just stop there. He takes our sin and then he says, I will give you my righteousness by faith. It's not just he takes our sin. So often we act as if Jesus has taken our sin and he's wiped our slate clean and now we're clean, but now it's up to us to work really hard to hold on to this. But no, he says he gives you his righteousness. It's not just that he takes your sin. Look at what it says there in verse 22. He has now reconciled us in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It means you're perfect in every way. And it's not because of what you've done. It's because of what Jesus has done and nothing else. The NIV says it this way. And I, I usually don't read the NIV. And I read it like a month ago. And the NIV translates it, translates it this way. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Hear that? That means in your mind, when you know that you're not perfect, and you know you've made mistakes, and you go back and forth in your mind, and you try to justify yourself. Oh, but I, I did that, but I did this. I did that, but then I did this good thing. And you try to balance it out, and you go round and round in your mind, and you're accusing yourself. It's actually the enemy accusing you. You can't be forgiven for that. What this says is because of what Jesus has done, there is no accusation that can be made on your behalf. You are perfect in His sight, and it's all what Jesus has done, and nothing else. And what the resurrection proves is that God accepts that. Joyfully, wonderfully, He says, I accept Jesus' behalf, uh, sacrifice on your behalf, and the resurrection proves it. There is now new life available because of what Jesus has done. That is the glorious good news of the resurrection. Now here's the question I want you to consider. How do we live in light of that? You can say, okay. He's taken my sin. He's given me his righteousness. 
I'm made new in His sight. It's all gone. But if we're honest, we wake up tomorrow and we still struggle with these things, do we not? You're still going to wake up tomorrow. Somebody's going to make a comment about your clothes or something, and you go, oh no. Right? Or your kids get a note home. They did something bad in school, and you're like, oh no, I'm a terrible parent. I can't believe they. And we fight that every day. Over and over. Those things keep coming back. So, how do we live in light of the resurrection tomorrow? When you wake up on Monday morning and all those things come flooding in. Each day as you awake and you become aware of the times that you've missed it. That you're struggling with those areas. When you're not honoring God first. When you're putting other things in His place and all the stuff that comes flooding in when you do. You turn and you thank Him for His forgiveness. Thank you God. That you've done what I never could do for myself. Thank you for the grace that is found in Jesus. That I have been made new. That I am not this old thing. That I am a new creation. That I have been buried with Jesus and raised again in the resurrection to new life. And I can live out of that. That's what he tells you here in verse 23. He says he's going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But then he says if. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. I want you to understand exactly what he's saying. You go, it's all grace and it's all Jesus and it's what he's done. And then he says, but if. And you go, whoa, wait a second. Sounds like works. Well, what's the work he's telling you to do? If indeed you continue in faith, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. What do you do? What is your part? You cling to Jesus and what he's done. That's what he's telling you. You hold fast that it's all Jesus and not you. And when you do, he meets you in the middle of that and he makes you new. Every day, he conforms you to his image. And so when your insecurities and your struggles and those things well up, you go back to the cross and you hold fast that it's all Jesus and what he's done. And he lovingly, gladly says, you are mine. You are free from accusation. You are holy and blameless in my sight. And it's all what Christ has done and nothing else. And so as we go out today, as you leave here, as you wake up tomorrow, in the light of the resurrection, it's not just a historical fact, although it is that. It happened in time and space in this life. Jesus rose Again from the dead. But it is the glorious good news that changes you from one degree of glory to another. That we would hold fast to the hope that he's given us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you have done what we never could do for ourselves. I pray that as we struggle, as we leave here and we struggle with what people think, And we seek to validate ourselves and we seek to fall back into all these other ways that we would do that. That you would overwhelm us with your grace. That you would show us so clearly that all that we have and all that we are and all that we will ever be is completely owed to you. And that you love us so much that you were willing to come and lay your life down for us. To do what we could never do for ourselves. For that we just simply say thank you. 
I pray for each one here. You know each heart and where they are. I pray that you would overwhelm each one here with the good news of what you've done. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.